From the Envelope of Suicides, a study of the will to die and the will to live. Episode 7, Laura and the Grasshopper, in which our narrator reflects upon a good friend's struggle with the will to die. It took me 10 years after I found my grandfather's collection of suicide stories, 10 years before I had the strength or the will or whatever to even put them in order. I couldn't put them in order until I was ready, and I wasn't yet ready. I didn't know what that meant. Maybe it meant that I wasn't yet ready to really look at death, or maybe it was all just too much. I don't know, but it took me 10 years. It took me until 2007 before I could put them in order. And it's been almost another 10 years since that. And now I think that for those first 10 years, I didn't have it in me yet to commit to seeing them as clearly as I could see them. I was afraid. I was afraid to do the work I had to do in order to see how different people see what it means for them to live and what it means for them to want to die and what it really means to me that I want to live. Each person in that envelope the alcoholic veteran, the young mother, the seamstress, the former cop. Each of them was as alive as I am and tried to end their lives. If I think that's tragic, then what am I doing with mine? Did I really know what my life was for? When I started studying those suicide stories, I tried to figure out what my grandfather learned from them. I mean, he collected them for seven years. So what did they ultimately mean to him? I never got too far with that question, though. I mean, all I could do was guess. And it became much more rewarding to focus on what those stories were coming to mean to me. One thing these stories have taught me is that, as uncanny and as scary as it is to think about, I have the power to end my own life. I can do it. So when I choose not to do so, when I choose to continue to live... I own that choice, and so I own my life. My life is now profoundly mine. So what am I going to do with it? What will I do next to justify that choice, that choice that I'm always making? That's the question I will wrestle with until I die. That question will be an animating force in my life, and because I am affirmatively choosing it, that seems like a good life to me. The more I studied these stories of death, the more I came to value my life. I know I'm lucky, though. Not everyone can reason or reflect her way to this. The accidents of birth and luck in their fickle spite and grace have made it so that some people who want only to live are compelled by hidden forces to try to die. Some fear death, but they fear life more and they see death as a release. Everyone is given different predispositions to death and different ways to make sense of it. And I know that I am blessed in how I've come to see death. Several months 
after I finally realized that everything I've been writing for the last few years was going to be part of this project, I dreamed an image more vivid than anything I'd ever seen. There was a field of tall grasses undulating and crossing waves in an ever-surging breeze I didn't feel. The grasses moved by their own motion as I walked past them on a sidewalk that ran beside the edge of the field and was separated from the field by a low retaining wall of bricks. As I walked, I watched the grasses sway like the strokes of the gentle sea bent endlessly by the edge of a bay. I watched the motion of long grasses as I walked until the field's edge fell suddenly back upon a clearing of crossed mats of freshly flattened grass. And there in the clearing, blocking the sun above the flattened grass, was an enormous rust-colored grasshopper with black eyes the size of my head. Its long body tapered back, and all of its sharp joints showed in taut repose the monstrous power of its imminent leap. Its jaws could hold and crush my chest. I regarded the round black eye regarding me, and I felt a great peace. The eye of the grasshopper was a well of inscrutability that pierced me as it soothed me, and looking into it felt like hiking a narrow trail through a dark forest that opens vertiginously upon a chasm, the stream I'd long walked beside, now plunging as a cataract and bursting into mist. One afternoon, a month or two later, I wrote a rough and rambling attempt to see the story of William Thomas, who was 74 and had lost his wife eight years before, when she was just 59. The New Britain Herald said William Thomas was one of the earliest Lithuanian settlers and had been a resident of this city for 54 years. The clipping said he had been ill for some time, which might mean anything, but often in the Herald implied depression or some sort of nervous breakdown, and he was discharged from New Britain General Hospital just last Sunday. Just before midnight, his daughter-in-law, Mrs. Ann Thomas, awoke in her room, and because, she said, all was too quiet, she went to the kitchen. She saw that a chair was missing. She looked into the bathroom, and she saw her father-in-law William's feet on the chair. She ran downstairs and roused two brothers-in-law who went to the bathroom, and Anthony Thomas saw his father hanging by a clothesline from a gas meter. And I was embarrassed because I couldn't stop thinking about that chair he'd taken from the kitchen. What did they do with the chair? They could smash it and burn it in the yard, or they could give it away, or they could be more frugal and less sentimental people and never consider such a thing. Maybe they'd just put it back in the kitchen and use it like they had before. Why did I care about that? I don't know why. But I wrote about that chair for a while, to very little effect. And then, though I wasn't tired, I felt like a brief rest. I left my desk and lay down on the covers of my bed. The window let a breeze through, and the summer light sifted through chestnut leaves. 
I lay on my back with my hands on my chest. I let my breath relax and I felt like I was sinking into myself, but only just enough to feel the dimension of depth. My hands sunk into my chest and I watched my thoughts move through translucent layers of faces of people. People I'd maybe only seen in thick crowds or in glimpses in the corners of rooms. Streams of ordinary people. And I arrived without transition in a clearing in a field. My bed was of soft grass, and around me swayed tall waves of flowering stalks gone to silvery seed. The shape their sprays described in outline against the bright blue sky seemed the essential form of my resting body swaying above me. The sky I could see was the bright and ever-moving azure shadow of my body, and across that negative space, high cirrus branches dissipated into sunlit mist. The vision was lighter than a dream and sweeter because it was mine to hold in my mind or to scatter and forget. It was my choice, lightly made, to let it grow, so new clouds formed and lightly broke just below the resting curves of my eyes. And I became suddenly aware that at any moment, and from any point in the field behind the swaying outline of tall grass that surrounded me, with the slight flex and release of its enormous angled legs, the grasshopper could vault up, fill the sky, and fall upon me, bend its head down and rend my flesh with its jaws, the machinery of which is rooted far back in its neck to achieve more torque and compression into my chest, which, when I realized it, only heightened my sense of triumphant peace. The sidewalk that ran along the edge of that field the one that I'd walked along in my earlier dream and now knew lay somewhere back behind the grasses behind my head. That same sidewalk along the edge of the field of life and death. I knew where I'd gotten that sidewalk. I knew that that sidewalk was the same one that I'd seen in a poem that my friend Laura had written a few years before. I was always so scared. Scared of concrete slabs bludgeoning me while I stood motionless on the sidewalk. Scared of voices screaming everywhere. Scared of the bees in summer. Every spring, I climbed up into the weathered treehouse and watched and wished I wasn't doomed. Wished that I had friends. Wished that I were normal. I only half understood the strange truths that were constantly uttered and screamed at me. But I did know deep that soon... I would be dead. And I was scared. Scared of my hands, scared of shortening days, scared of the sinister way the neighbor whistled his tune while trimming the hedge. Everything was so veiled in nuance. There was so much meaning to be gleaned from every bit of every sign from above, but it all meant I was doomed. And I was scared. The window above my head with verdure screams. Then another flood is quelled. Then another builds inside.
The sidewalk smashes her, the world screams, and a flood wells up that will drown everything. I met Laura in 2000 in Portland, a couple years after my grandfather died. My friend Liza and I had set up free 10-week writing workshops in public housing buildings, hospitals, community centers, shelters, and prisons. And Laura joined a workshop we had for adults with mental health issues that met in a church basement. In that workshop, Laura wouldn't speak till she was spoken to, but she was as generous with the other people in the group as she was gentle, and she was a sneaky sort of funny. I read a few poems she'd written in the group, and I was struck by how they seemed to give form to madness and how precisely they articulated a collapsing mind. I could see that in crafting her story, she was gaining some control of it. I could see that struggle at work. I asked to see more of her poems, and I saw something vital in them that I thought I missed in my own, a sense of slippery energy barely restrained. And next to hers, I wondered if my own poems sometimes seemed like overdetermined rooms. Listen to this poem of hers called Tied to the Wall. I measure escape like frightened snapdragons posing for winter frostbite. I can judge acuity by leaning over a fire and listening, growing loudly in warmth or practicing failure. Mad watch of the false start, skin ripping like ripe plums, and punishing my heart, and finishing. Most of her poems were about suicide and her struggle against self-destruction, and her struggle against the oppression she'd known in her long history of institutionalization. And together her poems created a long lyrical monologue of rage, horror, and resistance, and the more I read, the more I saw that her poetry was built on a foundation of aching beauty, and I saw an imagination that devoured life. We began to meet regularly downtown in the coffee shop on the ground floor of her building. I'd get there early and she'd be waiting for me. I'd see her sitting at a table in the corner beneath a floppy Victorian hat, her eyes cast down at a book or simply at her hands. And when she'd catch me coming her way, she'd stand up suddenly, smile, and say, It's a Ben! It's a Ben! And she'd give me a wide hug with her face turned away. Early on, she'd chastise me for not reading The Master and Margarita. And when I told her that I, too, loved Gombrovich, she said, Of course that means we must marry. Half the times we spoke, she'd somehow work into the conversation an exultant recitation of the start of the hunting of the snark. Just the place for a snark, the bellman cried as he landed his crew with care, supporting each man on the top of the tide by a finger entwined in his hair. Just a few weeks after being released after her latest attempt, Laura came down with severe pneumonia and they had to drain the fluid from her lungs and remove part of the lower left lobe. She'd been at the convalescent center for three weeks through the holidays, and just as her strength was starting to return and she'd soon be released, she learned the terrible news that Yvonne, a remarkable woman who'd been in her writing workshop and who herself had been in poor health lately, had collapsed as she was getting out of bed. 
Her heart just gave out, Benoit. Laura told me over the phone. It's so, so, so sad. She was such a good Joe. I asked if there would be a memorial service. Laura said yes and that she'd take the bus. I said I'd pick her up. There were about 20 people gathered in the small chapel off the lower hall of the First Congregational Church, and most were older women. Yvonne's daughter Pamela spoke first. She told us that Yvonne got pregnant when she was young, very poor, and in unstable mental health, so Yvonne put her up for adoption. Several years ago, though, when the records were unsealed, Pamela tracked Yvonne down, and they gained the relationship she'd always dreamt she could have with her biological mother. She said that Yvonne was a special woman. Then she opened the floor to anyone who wanted to speak. People shifted in their pews and crumpled their programs. After murmurs behind me and to my left, a short, thin woman with bright eyes and white hair came down the aisle to the front. She spoke softly for less than a minute about how Yvonne would call her every day, no matter what else was happening in her life, just to see how she was doing. And if she wasn't doing too well, Yvonne would say nice things to cheer her up. Yvonne would end each call by saying that she'd call again tomorrow. And the thing was, Yvonne always called. She was going to miss those calls. Yvonne did that every day for several people. Several women nodded, and she walked back to her pew. Another, and then another woman stood and spoke about the kindnesses that Yvonne had brought to her life. If you'd just moved to town, or if you'd been newly deinstitutionalized after a long time inside, Yvonne would take you on the right buses and show you how to get around. She'd go on her own initiative to a nearby building for low-income people with mental health diagnoses, and she'd organize trips for them to a drop-in center or to the zoo or to the movies. She never complained, not during many years of homelessness, not after battling mental illness or losing a breast to cancer. She was always focused on cheering others. She'd felt what it meant to be expendable, and she knew how that feeling could kill you. It seems like the world isn't for you, and you've got nothing to add that anybody wants. But Yvonne wouldn't let you feel that way. Now, she made you feel like you were special. She would call you every day, and she'd say that she'd call you again tomorrow, and you knew that she would. And sometimes, that's all it takes to convince you to hang on for one more day. She was a loyal friend to a lot of women. She would be sorely missed. Then Laura got up and went to the front to read a poem of Yvonne's. Laura wore a black blouse and a black velvet skirt. Her scarlet lipstick made her face more pale, and her hair had slipped free from her hair clip and splayed about her like a corona. Before she read the poem, she spoke about how just days before her death, Yvonne had convinced her caretaker to take her from her assisted living home all the way out in Gresham to visit Laura in her convalescent center in northwest Portland. Laura's hand shook viciously as she spoke, rattling the page against her skirt. She moved the page to her other hand, smiled, and said, I'm kind of nervous right now. Laura looked around the room and at our faces, and then quickly down to an unfocused spot near our knees. She said that one of the things that amazed her the most about Yvonne was that she never gave up. 
No matter what horrible things she was confronted with, she never gave up. That was amazing to her. She read the poem quickly, just like she always reads her own poems, as if she's rushing to get to the end when everyone can stop looking at her. And every time I've seen Laura read a poem, when she's done, her terror gives way to relief. There was a moment after she was done when she didn't move. She just stood there and she looked out at the people looking back at her with kindness. A space was cleared in her mind, a calm before the voices could rush back in, a calm she savored for a moment before she hurried back to her seat. Someone else spoke and then it was quiet. Someone in the back began to sing Amazing Grace. We reached for the hymnals and the racks on the backs of the pews in front of us, and someone said what page it was on so we could all sing along. We came to the end, and someone started it again. We sang it four times before, in mutual accord, we went into the next room for the buffet lunch. She grew up in a ranch-style house in Hazeldale, a suburb of Vancouver, Washington, just across the river from Portland, which was intolerable to her, so she and her friend Kay ran away to L.A. when she was 13. She had a lot of sex for money, she was repeatedly raped, and she took a lot of acid. She described her sober times then as often akin to mania, so she took a lot of drugs. She was exuberant and enraptured by the world. Sex was mostly an annoyance and sometimes a way to live in a house in the Hollywood Hills with lots of cocaine. She was intellectually curious. She and her friend Kay came back from L.A. and went back home like nothing had happened. They never really talked about it with their parents. She went back to school, then she moved to Portland, dropped out of high school, and started taking classes at Portland State. She fell in love with Russian literature, and therefore with Russia. There was mayhem, there were seizures. Some older man brought her and two girlfriends in as founding partners in an underground gay youth disco, which she helped build up and then cashed out her share so she and Kay could fly to London, where they worked in an industrial laundry for a while, and then drifted down to Dover, where they could make much easier money off the endless supply of sailors. They came back to the States. She was raped again, which annoyed her. She reveled in the strangeness of things and took more acid. She was a voracious reader. She and Kay went back to London, but this time they immediately burst onto the continent and careened through Amsterdam to Venice and then to Munich, where Kay took a psychotic lover. They fled Munich to Hamburg and then to Copenhagen, where, to their sublime delight, they fell in with two young and gallant drug smugglers, and they ran around in a state of glee with them, until, one morning, their adorable smugglers disappeared, leaving them with a stack of money and a note that said they'd be back soon. They didn't come back, and a nasty infection overwhelmed her while she and Kay were hitchhiking outside Brussels. 
she was delirious and taken to the hospital. An orderly named Jean-Paul fell in love with her, let her and Kay move in, and then pissed off Kay until she wanted to go back home. Laura went back with her. Jean-Paul followed, convinced Laura to marry him, took her back to Brussels, grew jealous, and beat her often. She survived. She escaped. She went back to college in Portland and got a divorce. She had a series of tragic lovers, took a lot of acid, and began to have episodes. Then she fell in love the most she'd ever fall in love. She fell for a man she named Craig in her thinly fictionalized memoir titled Possums Run Amuck. Craig's idiosyncrasies worked dialectically with hers. They took pleasure together in everything. They read together. They writhed together on the carpet to the music of Brahms. They went to communist functions together. They drifted away together from communism. And together they dreamed of anarchy. But this is her story. You should hear it from her. This is from her manuscript. Having always borne a deep desire to bear a child, I was in bliss at discovering I was with one. Craig and I spent long whiles contemplating names, and our bookstore attention turned solely to those volumes essential to a child's library. We read aloud to the developing child the poetry of Lewis Carroll, including Jabberwocky, in both English and German, and excerpts from The Master and Margarita. We played music and danced, knowing our child would be experiencing for the first time the joy of music and movement. At six months, two weeks pregnant, our little girl died. I had never contemplated so profound a loss. I never shed a tear. I was speechless. For days, I avoided Craig's eyes as if they would destroy me, but I finally found my only solace there. We alone truly knew what had occurred. My anguish became complete when I learned that I would never be able to bear a child. I sought no other company. I wanted reality to end. I remember being glad that it ceaselessly rained. Perhaps God also felt our loss. I don't think that I could have borne the sun. I couldn't return to work. We went to Flanders, the small town of Bruges we found to be the most splendid, almost religiously beautiful example of the best works of man and God. We spent hours in the stunning grand cathedrals and churches, the walls of which were covered with the dark and reverent works of Rubens and Van Dyck. We lunched on bread and cheese on the banks of canals where myriad swans floated and over which ancient stone footbridges crossed. The fields and gardens were crowded with Wordsworth's hosts of golden daffodils. The narrow streets were filled with little shops in front of which sat old women making by hand exquisite pieces of lace. All around were little bakeries and confectionaries bursting with intricately formed marzipan and chocolates and huge speculas fresh from their carved wooden moles. All this beauty contrasting with our daughter's death. We took turns reading to each other from the works of John Milton. Hail, divinest melancholy, whose saintly visage is too bright to hit the sense of human sight, and therefore to our weaker view, o'erlaid with black, 
stayed wisdom's hue. But the grandeur of Flanders could be almost ecstatic, as Jacques Briel surely knew. Ay, Marik, Marik, come back again, come back again to Brugigand, mine Platteland, mine Flanderland. Curative Flanders gave us strength to return home. I was forced to look for new employ, as the little cafe where I had been working had gone out of business, one of the implicating factors being the kicking by one of the owners of the state inspections person in the behind as he bent to pick up a dropped pen. The owners then sold the cafe and moved to Amsterdam. As it turned out, I would never hold another job. I've never been glad that I didn't kill myself when I had the strength. I remember hearing a song, the message, Think about the future. Life won't always be bad. But that's not true. Life can be one continuous drowning in a lake of fire. Coming back from Europe, I was sad to leave adventure behind, but I also missed home. I thought at the time there was plenty of time to enjoy further adventure. What I didn't know was that my life, my life of meaning, would shortly end. What was later named the beginning of illness was intensely enjoyable to me. My only problem was that my thoughts were beginning to ache, but I was held in complete awe over the world, suddenly magnificent. I was seeing colorful light flashes everywhere, colors and textures were more beautiful than structures, and structures overcame the sky. Going for cigarettes, I found the beauty osmotic. The rain, the low flat sky, the streets advancing like wet sticks of gum into infinity. This was euphoric. People would wonder what drug I was on. Not a new experience, though. I stared at the lights dancing on the wall in my bedroom. The bathroom mirror held me spellbound, and my globe provided hours of fascination. I listened to the Irish rovers or the wall. Under the spell of much grandeur, I climbed a fence into someone's backyard with the sole purpose of embracing a tree there. It was unfurling its resurrected life too early. There was still the chance of ice. I prayed for that tree, for its courage in being the first to bring green back to a pencil-drawn world. So, on that sodden, late winter day, I kissed the tree with easy tears for the fragility and extreme beauty surrounding everything. So it was that I one day found myself welling up with joy as I passed a tree turning pink. I was tearing up with happiness when I heard a voice more clear than the passing cars. It said, You could die in a field of flowers. From that moment, a veil was drawn. Everything was gray and threatening. I passed through a period of complete non-feeling. My love for Craig was not diminished, but I could no longer feel it. I was slowly sinking down a hole. It was soon that my daily existence meant, at the most, a benign, constant edginess. But it often meant howling panic. 
From that single voice came many. They were my constant tormentors. They marked me in illness, an illness that to me meant a world thoroughly impossible to negotiate. I couldn't easily cross streets as I had no idea if there were cars speeding down on me or if they were parked along the sides. I was horrified at finding my hands dipping razors deep into my arms. This was something I knew wasn't me. The easier explanation from my voices, my movements were all being controlled by a computer. This computer was programmed by people who understood God and carried out his will. I could feel myself being made to act, whether to sign my name or lift a glass or put a cigarette out on my arm. No movement of mine came from my own free will. I no longer remember how many years passed until I no longer saw Craig. The last thing I remember about him was his distressed look and cries as I was being dragged off to a seclusion room. An angel of God appeared to me three times. Each time he said that I was the reincarnation of the chief of the secret police under Stalin, Lavrenti Pavlovich Beria, a man who had tortured and maimed multitudes in the name of state security. So, the angel informed me, that I must hurt myself, that I would be controlled to hurt myself until my misery became complete and redemption would be at hand only after I pushed metal forks into my eyes for the world's recompense. My life became fully mired in fear. At first, I was able to mask the torment within. I learned to be able to read faces for the correct response, though booming voices kept me from hearing anything else. I used books as props so that it seemed I was laughing or crying at the contents therein and not the truth. Voices. I was able to disguise my extreme agitation by sheer dint of good acting skills. I always pretended I was playing a part. At first, my heightened anxiety compelled me to try anything. I briefly put hope in medication. At first, I thought the side effects were new symptoms of my psychosis. I was suicidal at the thought that it was the illness that deprived me of all thought. I literally never had a thought in my head. I could only respond, Oh? Yeah. Okay. I couldn't go outside without an extreme allergic reaction to the sun, which caused me to break out in burning, itching welts. My jaw held itself painfully askew, veering off to one side, and I couldn't relax it. My hands shook so badly that I couldn't sign my name. At last, I stopped taking the pills. At first, it was wonderful. Thoughts flooded my head. I entertained myself for hours with just thinking. I had unbounded energy. I didn't sleep at all for two and a half weeks. But shortly, voices deluged me again. Fear came back as well. I began seeing little demons hiding themselves in corners and scurrying about. Enough symptoms finally surfaced to land me in the hospital. This began a continual battle with chemical lobotomies. I still tried with all strength to resist my mind and make it perform the tasks it knew so well. Eating, showering, reading. 
I kept trying to finish school in between hospitalizations, yet so chemically infused was I that I had a grand mal seizure in the microbiology lab. I tried to reason my way to health without the use of chemicals. My school days ran down. I couldn't fight this illness with a frightening name. They pronounced it schizophrenia. To me, it meant death. I juggled classes, blaming them for my inability to function. Eventually, I just locked myself in the bathroom for hours and let my life go. The stereo talked, or rather communicated with me. It soothed me to the reality of death. No control was my own. Music ushered in the altar worlds, dark, dark, push razors deep into my breasts and lit cigarettes. No more reality. Or rather, intense, profound reality. A pseudo-world abandoned in music, crescendo of feeling. A release from the obligation of knowing, washing over me like waves of balm, spiraling into my own unfamiliar mind and intimate relationship. Maim, maim, no pain, no pain, lost insensate found, manifest controllers, give in, don't fight, words coming from the music, words hidden from the music's words, more manifest than my real body, like a dark, abjectly strange circus. In a separate world, the stereo speaks only to me, down, down language of the mind, surreal yet concrete, velvet, soft doors. Threatening, nervous, and agitated, the only course is mutilation. Powerful, screaming melodies unable to ignore, the only reality force, life force, controlling force, frightening force. voices that had insinuated themselves into the quiet spaces in her mind grew in volume and definition until they became the voices of one man and two women methodically laying out the case against her and sometimes exploding into rage, accusing her of being the reincarnation of Stalin's head of security, Lavrenti Beria. One voice might shriek behind her ears while another might coo between her eyes that she knows how she could end this. She knows what she must do, what justice demands, how to end the suffering. While her litany of crimes was being read, Laura found one way she could resist being controlled. She could hurt herself, which lessened the pressure of being Beria for a little while. Little Russian devils scurried in the shadows in her peripheral vision in the corners of her room. When she started listening to the voices that implored her to stop taking her anti-psych meds or her antidepressives or her anti-anxiety pills, when she started hoarding them instead, the little devils grew more bold. To avoid them, Laura would stop looking in the corners. 
She'd narrow her vision to hold just the TV set or just the cat she held and petted on her lap. And still they might pull themselves up by their long shadow fingers and peer at her from the edge of her sight. Sometimes, though, her visions gave her comfort. Quite often, really, in her studio apartment in a high-rise downtown, behind the waist-high heaps of books, the walls would shimmer and swell and form the face and body of a person who would take two steps into the room and with a kind look tell her she's not a bad person, she might even be good, in fact, and that she won't suffer much. As Laura tearfully thanks the figure, it lowers its hand and steps back into the wall. I ask Laura if she remembers their features. She says they're always just ordinary people, the same people over and over, featureless people, ripples of focus in a vast crowd, people exactly as unseen as one would like oneself to be on the bus. Their ordinariness is what she wants for herself, their ordinary lives, and their ordinary burdens of occasional guilt in wondering if they're doing enough to lessen the suffering of others. Laura is cursed by being extraordinary. Laura, the kindest and most caring person I know, has been perversely chosen to be the reincarnation of an extraordinary monster who crushed crowds of ordinary people. In a hostel in Brussels over two semi-manic days in 1982, she read all of the Gulag Archipelago. Stalin, who was made of bile and piss, but also pitch and galvanized steel, was not human, so he was out of the question as a monster to inhabit her. It would be just too much, a little too on the nose. But Beria, Stalin's chief of the secret police who'd done as much as Stalin to liquidate 40 million people, swaths of whole nations, there was something pathetic and weak in him that made him human enough. Beria's skin was unusually smooth. He wore pince-nez glasses and he looked like an intellectual. He ordered the massacres, both of prisoners of war held by the Soviets and of Soviet soldiers who'd been liberated from capture. He engineered a culture of total fear, and he massively expanded the gulag system of prison camps in which 14 million people were imprisoned and forced to work at hard labor every day in cruel and harsh conditions, condemned quite often to toil unto death because of a neighbor's false gossip, or because they had an ethnic identity that had come under political suspicion and instantly became unsoviet. He manufactured famines and used them as a tool for genocide. He was a sexual predator who raped dozens of women, and he caused the wretched deaths of millions, and he delighted in all of it. Even the other psychopaths in the Kremlin thought he was one sick son of a bitch. After Stalin's sudden death in 1953, Beria ruled the Soviet Union in an arrangement with Malenkov and Molotov that lasted only three months before Khrushchev, Malenkov, and Molotov had Beria shot in his house. One of Laura's poems reveals that Beria is an agent of God, a sinister and cruel God, the God of plagues and mass murder, 
and that Laura has been programmed by, as she says, hegemonic movements of no fight, of outsidious control. Programmed to finish what Beria could not. She is to destroy millions more, which means that the three voices that control her and cajole her and do their best to make her kill herself, those voices are highly moral voices. The voices try to convince her to martyr herself for the sake of humanity. But the people in the wall reassure her that there's been a mistake, it's not her fault, and that she's not responsible. Laura is pulled back and forth between the voices in her head and the people in the wall. I spent the long end of last night thinking about this kind and gentle woman who lives with her cat and the courage it takes for her each day to persevere under the weight of the sins of Laurenti Beria. was diagnosed decades ago with paranoid schizophrenia, which is considered a lifelong affliction with little hope of recovery. This infuriates me because she had many severe traumas during and right after her adolescence in that crucial time when you do your best to build a reality that supports the world as you experience it. And because of those traumas, her world gained a deep sense of unreality. And in all the years of treatment she's received, not once did anyone give her any serious attempt at therapy for those many early traumas. Not once. She's never been given any serious support in the essential and heartbreaking work of facing those traumas and integrating them into her being. Could you do that on your own? Nor has any counselor with the county's nonprofit mental health contractor, which provides care at much lower prices than the county itself could because its staff is paid poorly, not one of the many counselors Laura has had over the years, not once did any of them ever even really ask about those traumas. No, Laura only received care for the symptoms of the problem. Mostly, they gave her brain medicines. As a paranoid schizophrenic with continual sensory hallucinations and chronic suicidal ideation, Laura takes an antipsychotic called Clozerol, so she can keep the voices and demons dimmed enough to function in the accepted world. Clozerol, however, is highly toxic and has a host of serious possible adverse effects, such as constipation, drooling, muscle stiffness, sedation, tremors, weight gain, and vertigo. Even a slightly raised load of clozerol in the bloodstream can lead to a devastating loss of white blood cells, so her blood requires frequent monitoring to avoid any toxic buildup. Because of clozerol's significant drawbacks, Laura takes a lower dose of it in tandem with another antipsychotic called Abilify. Abilify doesn't cause many of the things clozerol causes, but it has its own adverse effects, such as headaches, nausea, blurred vision, a sense of an expanding void in the middle of one's abdomen, 
akathisia, which is the inability, despite the fiercest exertions of one's will, to still one's limbs or appendages, to stop them from twitching or shaking as if they were controlled by some more powerful being, and insomnia, which can lead to heightened anxiety, which she treats with clonopin, an anti-anxiety drug. Clonopin is known to cause depression, for which Laura takes Zoloft, a very popular antidepressant, that can cause insomnia, which may lead to anxiety, for which she takes clonopin. Zoloft may also increase suicidal ideation. After long-term usage, clonopin can lead to dizziness, irritability, and the acute fear of public spaces, as well as anxiety-inducing sleep disorders, panic attacks, and anxiety attacks, the prevention of which may suggest the use of an anti-anxiety drug, such as clonopin. In patients with chronic schizophrenia, clonopin may increase violent behavior, which may turn inward and manifest as self-mutilation. Because Laura's use of Abilify has caused her to have four grand mal seizures, she takes Depakote, an anti-epileptic, which can cause hallucinations, which can be treated with an antipsychotic such as Clozaril or Abilify. Because of the complex web of interactions between these drugs, she requires constant monitoring and calibration of her dosages. If the blood load of the Clozaril passes a certain threshold, or if the stress in her life increases just enough, the multivalent balance of her brain medications falters, and the chorus in her head gains in volume and articulation. The voices convince her that clonopin is a mind-control drug, and it's just making her avoid what she knows she has to do. The voices harass her to finally give in to her fate, and she starts hoarding her pills. The longer she goes without taking them, the more fixated she becomes on taking them all at once and ending everything. And how good she feels when she finally decides to do it. Though it might take three weeks between when she begins hoarding her meds and when she engages in enough self-harm or talk of suicide to be hospitalized or when she makes an actual attempt, her anxiety is no longer being suppressed by any medicine and yet she appears calm because she has hope that the end of it is near. This happens about every six to nine months. It has taken me a painfully long time to learn how to pick up signs that something is out of whack. And when I think I see them, I ask her if she's taking her pills. She hates lying and she thinks she isn't much good at it. But she'll come up with some lawyerly way to give me the answer she knows I want to hear while fully intending to do the opposite. When I press her on it later, when it's clear that I've been duped, She'll sheepishly explain how she actually didn't lie to me. She'll say, for instance, that the label on the clonopin said it was to be taken as needed, and she didn't think she needed it, so she didn't take it. Or, when I ask if she's feeling okay, she'll say, Yes. In a nice, clear voice, and then, as she turns away, she'll mutter, Ah, oh, Bushna. Which I'll later figure out is an ominous Russian word for mostly. When Laura is sliding into a psychotic break, she fears several things. First, she fears... Immediacy. Things exist too strongly. Even things in her apartment, things that she's picked out and otherwise seem quite innocent. A vase, a chair. They are there, and their presence screams at her. Second... Being controlled. She's controlled by the three voices, the man and the two women 
but also by the computer and the TV set. When I tell her to put the phone down and unplug the computer and the TV, that I'll wait, she unplugs them and she comes back to the phone a little relieved. Third, feeling electric. Orange juice is great at rechanneling the electricity in her body so that it doesn't scorch her veins. Fourth, petty demons. Though sometimes they're the least of her worries, they mostly just scurry in the corners. Fifth, being scared. This is a directionless fear, the medium in which she exists too strongly. Wouldn't it be better if she just existed less? She doesn't leave her apartment at all because of fear. The things that calm her are orange juice, little stuffed animals she calls frangulators, which she pets like a rosary, encouraging them to beam her good thoughts, and music on her stereo, the playlist of which steadily shrinks as her psychoses deepen until it's just a regular rotation of Pachelbel's Canon, the songs of Lou Reed, and Don't Fear the Reaper. Sixth, going to the hospital. She fears being controlled, and nowhere is she more controlled. Though it has been years and many times ago since she was viciously assaulted by a nurse's attendant in a locked ward, and though it has been years and many times ago since she was tied to the wall against her will with leather restraints, she does not like the hospital. And lastly, she fears hurting myself. Though this becomes quickly confused, what it means to help and what it means to hurt, she can see how the most beneficent gesture she makes can be read as a vicious sham, a burlesque of justice. She always walks around downtown with a dollar bill folded in her pocket, or, better yet, cupped in her palm, so that when she passes the next homeless youth, she can give that person a dollar without stopping or even looking and thereby putting that poor person in an inferior position to her. As if that could make up for anything. It's insulting and inhuman to even think it could. She must cut her vile behavior out, like with a razor blade. As she put it in one of her poems, Blood, blood on the floor politely. The razor blades are there to release the pressure. But when she really tries to kill herself, she almost always tries to kill herself with an excess of brain medicines. Laura can usually manage her anxiety and hallucinations. She's been doing so for almost 30 years. Although for a long time, about once every six to nine months, the balance would get thrown by something and her world would collapse and fits upon her and she'd be institutionalized for hurting herself or trying to hurt herself and talking about how she shouldn't be alive. Laura has been attempting suicide or building up to suicide now for almost 30 years. She is driven to it. Her will is turned to it. But she doesn't ever do it quite to the very end because she worries what will happen to her cat. She worries about who will care for her parents. She worries about the mess she'll leave in her apartment. Some last thread of a will to live leads her to confess to me on the phone that she just took 40 Abilify and she's scared. And that last thread of a will to live means that I still have time to call 911 and go to her place. Or it makes her take only 25 Clauserol the next time, so there's a chance she'll be found on the floor two days later and might still be revived. Maybe she's holding back because she's not fully convinced that she's a psychopath. 
She doesn't know what holds her back, but something does. Some last thread of the will to live. The last time she hoarded her pills, her lack of sleep and inability to control the feeling of being controlled got so bad that I was afraid she'd already passed the point of pre-psychotic mania that meant she'd have to go in the hospital for a while, which is always horrific and traumatic for her. But she got better, which is heroic, and we met a little later at her regular spot, a Starbucks by her building, which I called perverse, one of her favorite words. She was setting up the cribbage board, and I was shuffling the cards. She was beaming, and she asked, Don't you just love this weather? I ask her if she's brought me anything. She slaps her forehead and says, Oh, yes, I forgot. And she digs a huge plastic bag out from her enormous purse. You see, it says, I heart New York. It's a souvenir from a recent trip, her first trip in a plane in years. I look inside the bag and see hundreds of pills and blister packs. You've been saving up a lot, Laura. Yeah, I've been taking my regular pills, though. Those are just my PRNs. Well, it's a lot. Yeah? I ask why she's been saving them. Oh, you know, for when it just gets to be too much. When would that be? Oh, if I were thrown out on the street or put in prison. Why would you be in prison? Maybe for crimes against humanity? You're safe, Laura. You never know. I promise that if she's ever in prison for crimes against humanity, I'll sneak her pills into her. She looks great. Her tone is usually light, even when she's in real trouble. But on this particular day, her smile seems less sheepish, and she's beaming. As she fiddles with the cribbage board, I ask, How do you feel, Laura? Well, not bad. Fair to middling. Pretty darn good. Her smile widens and she leans in. Do you really think a whole bottle of Drano wouldn't do the trick? I tell her it might, but it might not. I tell her about Anna Wasik. I tell her about Nellie Micah. And I tell her about Anna Poglich. I tell her about how, if it didn't work, it would be awful. It would wreck her esophagus and it might condemn her to horrible pain for the rest of her life. But even now, when she feels great, she'd want to do it? Oh, if you handed me a loaded gun right now, I'd do it here. She still smiled. If I knew it would work, I'd do it. I thought of all those in the envelope who'd shot themselves. Four died instantly, two lingered a little while before they died, and two survived. I thought about this man, despondent for some time, Carl Oscar Norman, 37, shot himself with a rifle bullet in the cellar of his home at 37 Chapman Street last night, and he died shortly after he was admitted to New Britain General Hospital. The bullet lodged under his heart. Dr. Clifton M. Cooley, medical examiner, gave a suicide finding. Members of the family told policeman William J. O'Day that Norman had been in ill health. Norman was found by police lying in a lot about 200 yards to the rear of his home. He was placed on a stretcher and taken to the hospital. Asked if he wanted a minister, Norman gave police the name of Reverend Elmer L. Olson, pastor of the First Lutheran Church. Reverend Mr. Olson arrived at the hospital in time to talk with Norman before he died. And just three and a half months later, on Tuesday, January 2nd, 1945, there was this man at the start of another goddamn year.
Francis Simpkins, 34 of 235 Clinton Street, is in a critical condition at New Britain General Hospital with a gunshot wound in his left shoulder, self-inflicted in the cellar of his home Saturday night. He told police that rib pains, from which he had suffered since he was assaulted on February 14, caused his rash act. He also admitted he had been drinking. Police learned Simpkins staggered from the cellar, where he had a workroom, to the first floor of his home and told his father, I'm shot. A trail of blood showed his course. A shotgun was found in the cellar. On February 14, Simpkins was found in the road at Lafayette and Washington Streets, and subsequent investigation resulted in the apprehension and conviction of one assailant, while another was never located. He said during the fight he was kicked in the ribs. It's really hard to brace the stock of a rifle with your knees. Hands sweat and get unsteady, and the mouth of the barrel pulled away from his chest when he shot. Carl's bullet went under his heart. Francis was blasted in the left shoulder. The wound was messy, and the recoil sent the rifle from his grasp. Both men went down alone into the close earth of the cellar to die. The shots hit wrong, and both men burst above ground like Lazarus. Francis staggered to his father for help. Carl stumbled through the house, in which his mother and brothers cried out from their beds and came out after him into the warm night and down the slope of patchy grass to try to find him. Carl's feet fell roughly on the uneven earth. He ran wildly alive through the thicket of birch trees, ivy, and clover, and then onto a field of tall grass he stumbled down into. He lay out on the grass and turned over upon his back under the low dome of clouds of amber. The dome of clouds pulled the air from him, and the wound poured up between his fingers. And if the clouds broke open, they broke on stars that were blurred and trembling, before the clouds reclosed themselves into a concave sea of amber smoke pouring through the depths of itself. It was an ecstasy of unexpected life. Until the flashlights found him, he was lifted by shouting men, pushed into the chamber of a wailing ambulance, roughly wrapped in sheets, rushed inside under bright lights, shouted over, strapped down, shot up, and offered a priest. Reverend Mr. Olson arrived at the hospital in time to talk with Norman before he died. I don't know if Carl repented for his mortal sin. It's not known if he was forgiven. The white ceiling of the hospital darkened, and he was taken on an elevator, down a floor, into the earth, to the basement morgue, and put into a drawer. The record of his death was typed and filed in a cabinet down there before he was interred in Fairview Cemetery, so his flesh could fall away into the hungry earth. I honestly don't know if Laura would call that a success. He lived for twenty minutes after he shot a bullet at his heart and just missed, and what if, in that time, he regretted it? And Francis Simpkins, after he shot himself in the close earth of the cellar, he burst above ground and survived. After the humiliating wounds to his ribs and side that had plagued him for 11 months, after they were battered, wrenched, and newly torn by the self-inflicted shotgun blast, he survived. The old wounds that had been overwhelming were now scourged, and within months he went back to work as a night watchman at a factory and he didn't die until 1978. That means after he tried to die and was reborn, 
he lived another 33 years, almost exactly as long as he'd been alive before he attempted suicide. His suicide attempt was the midpoint of his life. Out of all the people in those 124 suicide stories in the envelope, 65 of them survived. Some continued in their despair, but others, I know, saw all they could have lost and found themselves relieved to be alive, and they determined to do something with their new life. And Laura says, Oh, if you handed me a loaded gun right now, I'd do it here. If I knew it would work, I'd do it. I don't get it. Even now, when she's excited about seeing her niece and nephew on the weekend, and when she's going to visit a friend in San Francisco the next week, when she's beginning to, as she had just put it, live life to the fullest again, when the sun is just like she likes it, and the breeze is just like she likes it, and it's a perfect day. People always say how lucky they were to survive their attempts. Not me. I believe her, but I don't know what it means. I tell her that there might remain between us this unbridgeable gap, that I'll never understand how she could want to end her life even when she's happy. We cut to see who deals, and she says, You don't want to do it, and I'll never understand that. Purgatory is where you toil in terror for ages upon ages, never knowing when your toil might stop, all in the hope to one day be released into a final grace. Well, thirty years of toil and terror might as well be forever, and the mere chance of hell might not be worse than the vicious certainty of the present day. Washed upon Purgatory's shore, Dante looked up and found a vast mountain tapering into the white glare of the sky. This mountain, this intricately wrought celestial reach of the earth, this mountain of purgatory tapered into the sky as it pressed its infinite weight onto its base, onto its lowest tiers, and into the base rock, and, through it, aimed its infinite weight back down into the tapering circles of hell. To set foot on the first slope of purgatory is to begin one's continuous trudging, one's inexorable ascent. The imagination that sought virtuosic order in the universe built that beautiful Terza Rima system to rise like a narrowing gyre along the spiraling road of a ziggurat. That narrow road, however, left nowhere for the struggling soul to cease its upward toil, to refuse the task, to give it up. Failures of the imagination are always cruel. So Dante put his suicides in the seventh circle of hell. They were slightly worse than murderers and just better than sodomites. And the souls of his suicides were trapped in the bark and flesh of wretched trees. It was a forest always besieged. Each suicide tree was fallen upon and buffeted forever by harpies rending and plucking its branches and leaves, falling upon them again and again with talons filthy with old blood and outspread just like the tightly flexed jaws of the enormous grasshopper, exploding down like on Laura, but not like on me.
It's been a few years since I wrote most of that, and Laura's actually been doing great. She's on a stable regimen of medicines that seems to be working. She's been sleeping well. She's taken several trips. She's been a loyal daughter to her ailing parents, visiting them often, taking them to appointments, and spending nice time with them outside their assisted living buildings. I don't know if it's that they finally got her medicines right, or if it's just luck or the passage of time, or if all the work she's been doing on herself is paying off, or maybe it's some combination of all those things. But she seemed happy to me, and it's been a few years since she's been institutionalized. Laura's life has been a constant struggle against suicide. She fights against the crushing guilt of being human and her crushing anxiety about a world that she believes would like her dead. My God, think of everything she survived, everything she's had to overcome. Multiple rapes, domestic violence, institutionalization, institutional and medical abuse, the relentless bombardment of voices shouting at her to kill herself. She is often scared. She is so scared. And still, she perseveres. I can't fathom the courage it takes to keep going in the face of such fear. But I know she is the bravest person I've ever known. She inspires me to fight to be more alive. I believe that, despite herself, she wants to live. She helped me write all of this. From the Envelope of Suicides by Ben Morad. Sound and music by Wilson Bediner and Courtney Sheedy. Guest voice by Aaron Letty. This has been made possible by a grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. If you are considering suicide, please stop for a moment and look at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Think about it. At that site, you can find resources and how to contact someone who can help you talk things out. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org, or you can call them at 1-800-273-TALK. For more about this project, including notes on this episode, please visit envelopeofsuicides.com and follow at Ben Morad. I'm Stephanie Barr. Thank you.